It's part three of Where the Road Takes Me and the second of a three-part programme. In part two of this programme, we brought you the concluding part of The Case Currently in Hand, a play written by Mike Russell from Clonakilty. It deals with the aftermath of the four executions and the legal wrangling that ensued. The Irish Civil War still remains a very delicate subject that requires balance, diplomacy and sensitivity. So, with that in mind, I wanted to find out from Mike Russell to what extent he found the play challenging to write. It was very challenging. I haven't written a play before, so um, I needed to, to, you know, work to, to basically learn the format of, of a play, even though I've been in, in quite a few plays. I kind of started writing basically all in my own voice, in prose, so there were long kind of paragraphs and monologues rather than dialogue. I had a few people come in and listen and give me very good advice and then I changed all of that into dialogue so you you have to have some sort of conflict in there to keep it interesting um, there's no point having a whole lot of information in there and having a boring place so the, the, the intent was to, to make it as interesting as I could so that you, you keep your audience and hopefully they hear what you have to say. It was an, an, an immensely gratifying experience to be honest I've, I've really enjoyed it very much and uh, I've been really lucky with the people that have come in and added to it. Um, we've had some fantastic people in there. My uh, godson uh, wrote the, the piece of music for the trumpet. He's a professional trumpet player. Stephen Berwin directed. He's, um, he's been teaching drama for 40 years. He's retired now. The actors have, were superb. They were, they were absolutely fabulous. They brought so much to it. So uh, it, it's been a challenge, but a very enjoyable one. Well, for your first play, you certainly chose a fairly challenging subject. Yes. Yeah, but I, I think as well, if you're going to do something, you have to be interested in it. And um, it's definitely something that I have an interest in. So it kind of makes you stay the course. Next week in the concluding programme, we look in more depth at the likes of Liam Lynch and Rory O'Connor. But because Rory O'Connor left very little information about himself behind, it would make researching any biography pretty difficult. Dublin-based historian Gerard Shannon agrees. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think, and it's not unique to Rory O'Connor, he didn't kind of leave any kind of lengthy tracks of writing as to his Republican thinking or explaining the reasoning behind his actions and decisions throughout the period, throughout the War of Independence and Civil War. We only have kind of the impressions of others and sort of the limited, more formal correspondence we have surviving of him. So, yeah, it's, it's very striking to me he hasn't been the focus of a major biographical study at this point, uh, particularly as we're kind of going through the centenary of these events at the moment. As I said in January 1922, he, along with some others in IRA GHQ, such as Lee Mallows, whom we're talking about today, and also Sean Russell, they were they were publicly opposed to the treaty. They made their opposition known to um, Richard Mulcahy, the then IRA Chief of Staff, and there was other prominent IRA commanders who joined them in this, such as Liam Lynch, the 1st Southern Division, and Ernie O'Malley of the 2nd Southern Division of the IRA. So Rory O'Connor was very much at the forefront of this. This is probably most infamous for a press conference that he gave in March 1922, just prior to the um, IRA convention that met in March 
March 1922. So basically, this was a press conference that Rory O'Connor was given to several, you know, national and some international journalists were there as well. And Rory O'Connor was saying that the IRA executive, that's the leadership of the IRA, or in this case, the anti-treaty IRA, has the right to oppose the Dáil because they've accepted the treaty. And a journalist says to them, so can we expect a dictatorship then, as in a dictatorship by the anti-treaty IRA? And O'Connor rather flippantly says, well, you can take it that way if you like. Now, I don't think Rory O'Connor was one for dictatorship. I don't think his thinking went that deep, to be honest with you. But it was a very kind of careless and flippant remark that was just, you know, manna from heaven for the pro-treaty side. You know, they, they would have used this in propaganda to say, look, you know, the Democrats, the anti-treaty side, are the anti-Democrats look at something that Rory O'Connor would have said. And it's very interesting that when the forces of the anti-treaty IRA executive take over the four courts complex in April 1922, Rory O'Connor released a statement where he says, this is no coup d'etat against the free state. I think he was certainly aware that the danger of, you know, those sort of flippant remarks that could just be used by your opponents. So that's where we're at in April 1922. He's on the leadership of the anti-treaty IRA executive. He's still the director for engineering, a position he had during the War of Independence. He's also the director for publicity. But when the Civil War begins on the 28th of June 1922, and several days into the Battle of Dublin, O'Connor, along with others such as Lee Mellows and so on, they're captured. So, ironically, the Irish Civil War, which is a conflict that he contributed to bring into being, O'Connor doesn't play much of a part in it after his imprisonment several days into the conflict. In one of your articles on Rory O'Connor, you referred to a Joseph Lawless who spent time with him in the Curra military camp, and he hadn't great things to say about him. Yeah, Joseph Lawless, it's an interesting, uh, this is from his Bureau of uh, uh, Military History Witness Statement. Yeah, so O'Connor is briefly captured during the War of Independence and he's, he's in the current camp and he, he actually escapes not long thereafter but Joseph Lawless doesn't have a very high regard for him and this is what you kind of see of Rory O'Connor he, he seems to be a very divisive figure in the recollections of some people and now that seems to be dependent on whether you're pro or anti-treaty and Lawless in his witness statement makes clear that he was very much with Collins during the later treaty split but when he's referring to O'Connor during the War of Independence he kind says he well he didn't seem too right in the head and he didn't make the best decisions and so on so yeah Lawless he's not very complimentary of, of O'Connor at all but I mean on the flip side of it I mean people such as uh, Dorothy McArdle she writes in her book The Irish Republic she, she talks of O'Connor as a very formidable Republican and a very great leader and so on so you do see that across the treaty divide like depending on where you stood you know people had either positive or negative uh, opinions of Rory O'Connor and this is unfortunately all really we have to go on because as I said he didn't really he didn't really leave any kind of detailed information about himself. There's not a lot of kind of more personal correspondence where we actually hear Rory in his own words, so to speak. So we're kind of just left with these impressions of other people had of him during the period. Michael O'Mahony is Dick Barrett's grandnephew. His grandmother was Dick Barrett's sister, and she spoke regularly about her famous brother. I suppose it's from her, really, and from my own mother, too, that we got the, 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 the interest was instilled and, you know, as to what happened and what the events were about. But I would always have been conscious that there was a certain amount of secrecy certain things weren't said and certain things wouldn't be said in the company of maybe other people and so forth. There was always that thing that, you know, the unspoken word, I suppose, was part and parcel of the healing process, maybe for some people after the Civil War and after those tragic events. Tell me a little bit about the early life of Dick Barrett, because he comes across as having been a very well-educated and courageous young man. Yeah, I suppose he, like he, was, he was obviously a very bright student. And the local school would have been Knox School, which is now closed, which was about uh, maybe a mile cross-country from the Barrett family. And then uh, when he finished there, he went to Knox Gas School, which is now a very, very big school on the Balmain, Clancy Road. And that school at the time prepared students for uh, further education for people who were interested in the civil service and teaching and maybe in, in, in becoming priests and so forth. And he went there and he was there for five years, both as a student and as what they called a monitor teacher. 
that he was a trainee teacher helping to, to, to teach the classes. And from there, then he got a scholarship uh, to the Lesalle College in Waterford in preparation for um, his teaching profession. And uh, when he qualified in, in, in the Lesalle College in Waterford, his first posting was to Newcastle Boys National School, which is down near Tonbidden in Tipperary. But he wasn't there too long before he returned to Upton and uh, to the industrial school there as a teacher. And in the following year, in 1915, he was appointed the principal of Grand National School, which is um, there near Upton, about a mile and a half from Crossbury. And thankfully, the school is still there, a very small school, but still there. And some of the, the old um, boards and things that were used in Dick Barrett's time are still in use at the present school. So he was there then from there until his uh, arrest in 1921. And it was in the Upton area, I suppose, that he made his name as as a revolutionary leader and um, joined the struggle for Irish freedom. Next week in the concluding programme, Dublin historian Gerard Shannon looks in more depth at the likes of Rory O'Connor and Liam Lynch. We get more on the legal side of the executions from legal historian Sean Enright. And we get to see the original letter written by Liam Mellows from his cell in Mount Joy hours before his execution. My thanks to everybody who joined us on the programme and to you for your company. Until next week at seven, I'm John Green and I wish you a very pleasant and a very safe week.